Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Friday, May 10th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, we now have a specific location for the first primary debates, how cable TV town halls have become a key part of primary coverage, Andrew Yang plans to use holograms to spread his message, Sanders teams up with Ocasio-Cortez on banking reform, and Elizabeth Warren is on the cover of Time magazine. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Although the general location and timing for the first primary debates has been known for a while now, this morning NBC News gave us a bunch more specifics. The key headline is that the debates will be held in Miami's Arsht Center for the Performing Arts and will air on NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo. The debates will span two nights, of course, those being June 26th and 27th, which, by the way, are a Wednesday and Thursday, so start thinking about your weeknight plans now. Those debates will air live from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern each night. The way the debates are structured, there will be a maximum of 20 candidates, and as we've discussed so very, very much on this show, you can bet that number will be met, even though technically today we're only at around 18 candidates who for sure have made it. Anyway, the plan is to split that 20-person group randomly into two sets of 10. So first night, 10 candidates. Second night, the other 10 candidates. And there's not that much else to say in this segment. I mean, we've got the location, the time, and that's it. But I do want to mention, as a former Floridian myself, the Arsht Center was previously called the Miami Performing Arts Center until a massive $30 million gift from Adrienne Arsht. Now, if you're not familiar with her, it's worth looking her up. She was the 11th woman ever admitted to the Delaware Bar. She practiced law starting in the 60s. She was the first woman to be awarded the Carnegie Hall Medal of Excellence. And her mother was the first woman judge in Delaware. Just a couple of fun facts for your debate night trivia contest when your friends say, Who's Arsht? In an article for 538, Claire Malone looks at how the televised town hall format, and specifically the CNN format that has recently also been adopted by Fox, is driving a lot of discussion in the 2020 primaries. And this is obviously a correct observation, given that much of yesterday's show was about a Fox town hall. So town halls are a way to give candidates airtime in a relatively controlled environment, while giving the network something to talk about, promo, fact check, and so on. The format is super simple. You put a bunch of people in a room, and those people ask questions off of note cards. A host-slash-moderator introduces the questioners and often asks follow-up questions of the candidate if the answer seems incomplete. Usually, the answers are just snippets of already rehearsed lines from the candidate's stump speech. To be honest, nobody really expects massive news to come out of these things, but sometimes it does drive major media coverage the next day. A successful CNN town hall appearance basically launched Pete Buttigieg's rise in the field, and the Sanders town hall on Fox helped him win the news cycle the next day. Reading from Malone's piece, quote, 18 months out from the presidential election, the clearest role that CNN's town hall seems to be playing is as a useful generator of what historian Daniel Borston called pseudo-events in his 1961 book The Image. Orston had noticed a rise in news events that weren't really news events at all in the classic sense of things. Rather than organic happenings like protests or confrontations, these pseudo-events were the creations of public relations professionals, artificial inflection points designed to help public figures get their messages out. I recently saw an article reporting that public relations professionals now outnumber journalists six to one. 
I wonder what Borston would have thought of that. As a political journalist, I've realized an unfortunate stomach-dropping thing. An awful lot of what we cover is pseudo-events. Political conventions, speeches, candidates buying donuts in New Hampshire in front of 15 television cameras and five confused bystanders. It's all manufactured. CNN's innovation is its regular propagation of pseudo-events for the 2020 cycle. There are hordes of reporters at myriad news organizations assigned to the beat, each one marking time and looking for chum in the water. End quote. And that's it. That is exactly right. And it's something to watch as we tease apart what is news and what is manufactured. To me, the news part of a town hall is generally a moment of surprise, like when Sanders got applause for single-payer health care on Fox News, or a moment of real confrontation, like in the story yesterday about Amy Klobuchar, Al Franken, and Brett Kavanaugh. Confrontation is particularly interesting because even if it is manufactured, as it clearly was for the Klobuchar town hall, it can reveal actual truth about what's going on in the mind of a candidate, especially when nothing else is really going on. One more bit from Malone's piece. Quote, In these town halls, CNN has created a kind of petri dish for news at a time when candidates aren't otherwise doing all that much that's considered newsworthy. They haven't radically reshaped the campaign, but they have given it some useful plot points. End quote. First it was Princess Leia, then it was Jem's backing band, then it was Tupac, and now the latest hologram to capture the world's attention is Andrew Yang. Yeah, well, the Des Moines Register reports that primary candidate Andrew Yang is working with a private company to create a live 3D hologram of himself, allowing him to be in at least two places at once. He suggests that this will help him reach voters in Iowa specifically. So first, we have to talk about Yang as a candidate for just a moment. His platform is all about the disruptive effects of technology on things that we take for granted. For instance, having a job. Yang is concerned that increasing automation will continue to remove the need for humans to do many kinds of jobs, and that will leave those humans very much in the lurch. As part of his strategy to combat that trend, Yang has proposed a universal basic income of $12,000 a year. We're going to get into what that means in another show. But for now, the easiest way to think about Yang is as something of an underdog candidate polling in the single digits with a healthy respect for how technology can really mess up your life and the economy if you don't keep an eye on it. So this latest news on the Yang front is that he is in talks with a firm called Hologram USA, which has technology to scan and project 3D holograms of people in real time or via a recording. So, for instance, Yang could be in a studio in one location with the hologram system scanning him live while his image is projected in one or more remote locations. Add some audio to that experience in both directions and you end up with an interesting scenario. Yang could do a town hall, for instance, where he appeared to be on stage in multiple small locations, but take questions via audio from the audience in each location and actually address all of those people live. This technology could help reach an aggregate audience across multiple spaces. For a candidate like Yang, who might have trouble filling a single giant venue, holding multiple smaller events like this might actually be a viable way to reach a larger number of people. There's also talk of Yang putting a holographic emitter on the back of a truck as it drives around Iowa. In this case, it could either be live or a pre-recorded speech. So if it is live, the truck could pull over and Yang's hologram could then talk to Iowa voters. By the way, this tech has already been used in European elections. So here's the thing. 
The inherent geekiness of the hologram thing actually speaks to themes in Yang's campaign. He kind of owns the tech space in this particular field. He's an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, and so on. So having him use a hologram is, yes, a gimmick, but it's the right gimmick for him. It's actually a way for him to make some of his core campaign points. For instance, if he, as a politician, can show up in Iowa without actually showing up in Iowa, what does that mean for other people's jobs? What does that mean in terms of him not having to buy things if he's not physically there to actually interact with the local economy? But most salient is the concern it might spark in anybody watching. What if some new technology comes along that can just beam somebody else or something else into my job? That's what Yang is hoping people will come away with. Or, at the very least, you can watch Yang's hologram dance with a Tupac hologram on Twitter. Yes, really, that is a thing that happened, and there is a link to that in the show notes. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, What's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is Gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Yesterday, Senator Bernie Sanders teamed up with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They introduced legislation that would do several key things. First, they would limit the top interest rate on credit cards and payday loans to 15% at a federal level, but also allow states to set lower limits on their own. Second, they would offer banking services at existing post offices in an effort to reach low-income Americans. They call the legislation the Loan Shark Prevention Act. So let's dig into each of these two items. First, the cap on interest rates. Now, I want to do some word talk for a minute. There is a word that is often used when we talk about lending money, and that is usury, spelled U-S-U-R-Y. In its original definition, literally millennia ago, usury referred to charging any interest for any monetary loan. And historically, many communities consider charging interest at all to be morally wrong. And this is true today in many Muslim communities, for instance. But for most communities today, usury now refers to charging an exorbitant interest rate, a rate that is much higher than seems reasonable or in line with typical practice. Instead of calling it usury, though, another term for somebody who does that is a loan shark. Okay, so here are two short clips from a live-streamed video in which Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez introduced the plan. Now, heads up, this audio came from a phone, so I had to do some cleanup to make it as intelligible as possible. All right, clip number one. You know, Alexandria, I suspect you know this, but every major religion on earth, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, 
has condemned usury. That's right. Because it is really disgusting. I mean, I don't know a better word. Is if somebody is desperate, and you say, you're desperate, you need money to take care of your children, to feed your family, well, I'm going to lend you money, but it's going to be at an outrageously high interest rate. And that's what Wall Street has done. So right now, you're looking at a medium media credit card interest rate now of over 21%. That means half of the American people are actually paying more than that. Mm-hmm. And clip number two. Uh, what Alexandria and I are proposing in our legislation is something that is not complicated. It just takes us back to where we were a number of years ago. And that is that no bank in this country uh, should have credit card interest rates of over 15%. So we're bringing back the concept of usury laws where people cannot try to, where banks cannot try to get blood out of a stone. Uh, Previously, uh, you had states like Alabama that charged maximum 8%, Vermont 12%. Many states had maximum uh, amounts of interest rates that credit card companies can charge. But as a result of the Marquette decision back in 1980, I think, uh, essentially that was nullified. And we're going to bring that back. All right. In a tweet, Sanders got at the second part of the plan. That's the postal banking part. Quote, banks make record profits discriminating against people of color and denying basic banking services to 63 million adults who are unbanked or underbanked. We must allow every post office to offer basic, affordable banking services and end lending discrimination once and for all. End quote. Now, again, a terminology note is in order here. Unbanked means you don't have an account at a bank. And underbanked means your community either doesn't have any banking services or they are insufficient for what that community actually needs. Okay, well today, there are almost 31,000 post offices around the U.S. spanning everything from giant metro areas to rural communities. This proposal would use that huge piece of existing infrastructure to add in banking services. Especially in rural areas, there are plenty of places that have a post office, but no local bank. And this plan would bridge that gap. Now, as many commentators noted, this plan cannot pass a Republican-controlled Senate right now. But then again, neither would most of the policies the Democratic primary candidates are talking about every day. And last up today, Elizabeth Warren is on the cover of Time magazine. The cover bears the large headline, I have a plan for that. Democrat Elizabeth Warren is betting Americans are ready for her big ideas. The article is by Haley Sweetland Edwards, and it is very much worth your time if you have never read a history of Warren. Like if you want to know more about this candidate and you're looking for a detailed intro, but you want something you can read in 15 minutes. Well, this is that. It is detailed, it is personal, and it is political. I also want to point out that one photo in the middle of the piece literally made me spit out my coffee. It shows a box full of homemade cookies with the word persist written on them. So quick reminder, Warren is the person Mitch McConnell was talking about when he gave his now infamous speech with the line, nevertheless, she persisted. That line, together with I have a plan for that, give Warren multiple organic catchphrases. Okay, so here's a snippet from the article. Quote, Warren, nay Elizabeth Herring, was born in 1949 into a lower middle class family in Oklahoma City. All three of her brothers were in the military. Two are Republicans. Warren herself was a registered Republican until the mid-1990s, although she says she was not very political at that time. 
Her family's financial struggles mirrored those of many alienated voters in middle-class America today, a visceral experience that she says has defined and informed her politics, end quote. The story then goes on to detail a childhood involving one parent with a health crisis, another parent with a minimum wage job, and all the kids just trying to get by. In the late 60s, Warren got a scholarship that began paying for her college education, but she dropped out to get married. And what followed was a story that many of us can relate to. She was trying to raise a pair of kids while working and while slowly taking college classes to finish her degree. There's a particularly poignant photo in the piece showing Warren at her graduation with elderly parents on one side and Warren's young daughter standing on the other. Warren has given her graduation mortarboard to her daughter, who wears it while totally ignoring the camera and probably wishing she had a persist cookie. And there's more on the personal side, of course, but also quite a bit on Warren's political efforts surrounding bankruptcy and banking as an issue. Without getting too far into the weeds, this is a place where Warren personally lobbied the Clinton administration to stop a bankruptcy bill that she believed was unfair. The same bill passed less than a decade later with the support of Joe Biden. One more snippet from the article, quote, Campaign aides say they're playing a long game. While Biden and Sanders may be better known, Democratic strategists unaffiliated with 2020 campaigns say Warren has proven appeal. In 2012, the Obama-Biden re-election campaign found that of all the Democratic campaign surrogates, Warren resonated most powerfully in focus groups. The sense was that she gets it. She understands us. She is fighting for the right stuff, says a former senior aide to the Obama-Biden re-election campaign. She had an authority that no one else had. End quote. Well, that's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, we're closing out a week, and I want to leave you with another This Day in History moment. On this day in 1869 in Promontory, Utah, the U.S. completed its transcontinental railroad. From that moment forward, you could travel on a rail car all the way from coast to coast. And this story always reminds me of another story, which is that the train companies started on each end, the West Coast and the East Coast, and had to meet in the middle. And what that meant was they had to agree on the technical specs of how those tracks would fit in the middle. They had to have everything right down to the millimeter to make sure that a train coming from the East Coast system could still work on the West Coast system and wouldn't just fall off when it went over the hump. And when those rails were connected, it worked. And that is amazing. That was 150 years ago today. Now, there's also a whole aspect of that story, which is the terrible, terrible labor practices of installing those railroads. But it's an example of what determined Americans can do with engineering and tons of labor and a big, big idea. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all on Monday. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.